you and peace from God the Father and our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Amen. And in case you guys haven't picked up on it this morning, I'm running at like 155. So you're going to have to raise the energy level in this room because I'm not going to be the only one zooming here this morning. Got a lot I want to talk to you about, a lot I want to show you, a lot that God is going to unveil to you this morning, and I don't want you to miss it. So I'm going to start by talking about advertisement. Advertising executives will tell you that the best form of advertising is, guess what? Word of mouth. The best advertising is word of mouth. According to statistics, you are 95% more likely to follow the advice of a friend or a close relative than you are to see or to, of an advertisement that you see or hear or even uh, read. Um, so that's what you're talking about. And they also tell you, the same executives will say, the best advertisement is a satisfied customer. Okay, so with that as the backdrop here, I want to ask you a couple of different rhetorical questions, Paul. These are rhetorical. These are the ones you don't answer out loud, all right? What difference, this is the question number one, what difference does Jesus make in your life? Now notice I didn't put that past tense. I didn't say what difference has Jesus made in your life. I'm asking you what difference does Jesus make in your life? That's question number one. Question number two is a little bit more important. I'm going to come back to it about 75 times this morning. If someone, here's the question. If someone asked you why you are a follower of Jesus, what would you tell them? Somebody asked you why you are a follower of Jesus. I think most of us would have that look on your face that you have right now. All right, so I'm going to jump right into our gospel reading this morning. But before we do, I'm going to talk about Luke. So we read from the book of Luke chapter 4. Um, Luke is my boy, man. I, I like reading Luke because he's one of us. Luke stands alone of all the Bible authors, the people that contributed books to the Bible. Uh, Luke is what we would call, or what the Bible would call, a Gentile. That's a non-Jewish person, a person that was not born into the Jewish uh, religion, the Jewish uh, customs, the Jewish um, um, race, even. So Luke stands alone. Now, Luke is mentioned several times um, in the New Testament. He was a follower and a companion of the disciples. He was a follower and a companion of Paul. Paul mentions him several times. The Apostle Paul mentions him several times. Paul doesn't point out a whole lot of people, but he, he points out Luke a couple of different times. So now with that, again, as the backdrop, Luke writes a little bit differently because he's writing to a different audience from a different perspective. That's why we can get a lot out of what he writes and what, and what he doesn't write. So he leaves in or adds things into the, his gospel that the other gospel writers don't, don't add in. He leaves out some things that would confuse people that aren't of the Jewish culture and the Jewish nature and, and all the background that they have. So I really like reading uh, the things that, that Luke wrote. Again, that non-Jewish audience. So, all right. So let's, um, one, one other thing about, about Luke before I move on. His gospel focuses on the humanity of Christ. Now, don't get me wrong. Um, not, not just the humanity. He calls Jesus Emmanuel, God with us. So he's got, Jesus is fully God and fully man. Luke gives us the nuts and bolts of Jesus, though. Kind of who he is. That we can maybe feel the sweat of his brow a little bit more. and um, Kind of hear his voice rustle in our ears a little bit more than, than some of the other gospel writers. Okay, so Luke is an excellent writer, by the way. He's a very educated person. He's a doctor. Um, he, has a, he has an extensive background. And again, his gospel reads a little bit different, even ac- academically. Obviously, this person had a strong view and a strong understanding of the Greek language, which only makes sense because that's, that's his background. So, all right, this is what he does. He gives us a thesis statement. He gives us his purpose statement of what his gospel is all about. In chapter 1, verse 4, let's take a quick peek at that. He says, um, Luke, this is Luke writing to his friend. He said, I did this 
this. I wrote all this so that you can be sure what you have been taught is true. Okay, so now, if that's his thesis statement, we can take that line into the things that, that Luke teaches us. Say, okay, um, I don't know about you guys, but in, I didn't I try to be sarcastic with my teachers. Gina, no offense here or anything, but I, sometimes I would ask my teachers not to be sarcastic, but I would ask them, why are you telling me this? What, what am I supposed to be getting out of it? Almost to the what's your point kind of thing. Well, Luke says, this is my point. This is why I'm doing this. So everything that we read and everything we talk about and everything we understand about Luke can go back to this verse, his thesis statement. Okay, so now he's writing to us so that we can be sure about what we've been taught about Jesus is true because there was a lot of stuff being taught about Jesus that was true, but then Luke and the other gospel writers said, we better start getting this to a little bit more of a point. We better get this down on paper uh, so that people can have it circulate and they can understand some of the things that, that, that we haven't told them yet, some of the stories and some of the ideas that we haven't told them. So he's not, he doesn't waste Luke doesn't waste any time um, solidifying that for us. And now, Jesus, on the same uh, instance, does not waste any time solidifying his purpose for us, the Messiah's purpose for us. And we, we just read it, and we might not recognize it when we read it, because that's how we kind of sometimes read the Bible. And no offense, but man, we just start going through these verses and been like, yeah, heard that, been there, done that, heard that, heard that. Well, if we're not curious, and if we're not asking questions, um, we're kind of missing the point that Jesus is trying to get across to us, that God is trying to get across to us. So let's pick this up. You guys want to buckle your seatbelts real quick here because I don't want anybody to get thrown out of the pews here while we're going along here. I want to take a look at verse 14. So we're going to start. We're going to go down this and we're going to pick it apart and we're going to put it back together again and see where uh, our lives fit into this. Verse 14 says, Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit and news about him spread through the whole countryside. Okay, so Jesus returned from Galilee. Our first question should be, return from where? Well, what was he doing? What was going on? And when we think like that, and now maybe we, when we're reading the Bible, we already would have picked up on this. But look at what happens in verse 13. This is verse 14. Look what happens in verse 13. It says, when the devil had finished all, his, all this tempting, he left Jesus, him, until an opportune time. Jesus just spent 40 days in the wilderness being tempted by Satan. And now Luke says, all right, now we can get started. Now Jesus really comes on to being. And so it says, when he returned to Galilee, the news about him spread through the countryside. Okay, so again, now Jesus gives his purpose here. He gives a purpose statement pretty much right up front. And I don't want to spoil this for anybody, but he lays it out here. Let's look at verse 15. Jesus was teaching in their synagogues, and everyone praised him. All right. So far, so good. We're in Galilee, right? That's the northern part. We've got uh, Jerusalem down here. Got this area called Samaria in between. You have Galilee up at the top. And Nazareth is in Galilee. Now look at verse 16. Uh, this is where it gets interesting. And this is only, this, this historical account that we're about to talk about is only in the book of Luke. Like I said, Luke included some things that the other gospel writers didn't include. He left some things out that they, that they included. So we really get a good picture of what's going on here. Okay, so Jesus comes out of the desert, goes into Galilee, and now Luke gets specific. He says, okay, Jesus went to Nazareth. He went to Nazareth where he had been brought up, almost parenthetically. Oh, by the way, he had been brought up here. On the Sabbath day, he went into the synagogue, as was his custom. He stood up to read. Kind of a funny place for a verse break there, but we'll go with it. He stood up to read, verse 17. The scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. Unrolling it, he found the place where it is written this, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor, He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, 
verse 19, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Okay, so now let's recap just real quick before we move on, because this is where it gets really interesting. Jesus goes to Nazareth, right, where he had been brought up. He's in the synagogue on the Sabbath day. Where else is he going to be? He stands up to read, right? And he reads out of this scroll, and then he, he, sit, he, he hands it back to the scroll, hands it back to the attendant in verse 20. He, he rolled the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down. The eyes of everyone in the synagogue, it says, were fastened on him. Let's look at that for a second. Fastened on him. Literally, eyes glued on him. And this is astonishment. Mouths hanging open here, wondering what's going on here. So, and let's take a step back. We'll, we'll work backwards here. I'm going to break down verse 18. Actually, let's skip verse 18 because uh, I'm going to break that down in just a few minutes here. Uh, but let's have a, a bit more understanding about the prophecy, the Christ, the anointed one, that comes out of, straight out of uh, Isaiah 61. Okay, so think back to the top now. Let's put this together, the, the line that, that Luke has drawn for us. He goes back to Galilee. He goes to Nazareth, his hometown. It's a Sabbath, and of course, he's at the synagogue again. Where else would he be? But then some crazy stuff starts to happen. I mean, if we're reading this, we should say, what, what's going on here and why is this happening in this way uh, and not a different way? So, but if we don't understand the culture a little bit more and understand what's going on here, we're going to miss the point that Jesus is making. And like I said, what we're looking at here is Jesus' thesis statement. What we're looking at here is his introduction. What we're looking at here, here is Jesus saying, this is what the Messiah is going to do for you. So we don't want to miss the point here, because like I said, the gospel writer Luke included this, this astonishing moment in world history. So Jesus stands up in the middle of the service. And us, with our 21st century minds, probably don't think anything of that. Right? Jesus says that I am there among you, where there are two or more gathered in your name, in his name. Um, he is here. So we know that Jesus is here in spirit. But just play with me for a second. If Jesus, in a bodily form, walked down the aisle and wanted to read something... We, when we hand him a Bible and let him pretty much take over, whatever, well, that's not what was happening here. I point out that this is the beginning of his ministry because uh, if somebody interrupted the service in the middle of this, we would kind of look at that kind of strangely and say, well, okay, we'll see if we can go with this and hopefully nobody gets hurt, right? But okay, but this is what's happened here. Jesus is supposed to be today's reader. Same way Ali was today's reader. Jesus is today's reader. So he stands up uh, and, he, and he goes up and reads. Well, let's back up from that just a little bit. Because here's how that happened. Here's how that came to be. Um, when the Babylonians um, conquered the Israelites and brought them into captivity, um, one of the things the Babylonians tried to do was to destroy the Torah. The Torah, the first five books, also the Psalms that were written, um, Proverbs, some of the prophets were written. They tried to basically destroy the Bible as we had it at that time. So the scribes, the Pharisees, and the Sadducees got together and they said, okay, what are we going to do about this? And they thought, well, there's some human terms that we can, we can figure this out. Maybe we can hide them someplace. And we found some of them that they've hidden away. Um, so that, they were like, that's kind of going to work. But maybe we've got to get a little bit more, um, some reassurance, some other way to do it. So what they did was this. They said um, certain families are going to be responsible for certain parts of the Bible, to memorize those parts of the Bible. Now that might just blow your mind right now, but do remember that I've told you this before, that all Hebrew boys were supposed to memorize the first five books of the Bible, the Torah. And then they were supposed to be able to discuss it, talk about it intelligently, expound on it, and then they could become a disciple of a rabbi. And every Jewish boy, I guarantee, wanted to hear the words from the rabbi, come follow me. The only way to do that was to have not only memorized the first five books of the Bible, but to be able to expound on it. So it wasn't a real foreign idea, a real foreign concept for them to memorize these parts of the Bible. 
And then what they did is they said certain families are going to be responsible for certain sections of the Bible. So we'd say, okay, Shamburrocks, you are responsible for Genesis 1 through 6. And then on the first Saturday of the year, Sabbath day of the year, um, you come in and you're going to read uh, out of those texts. And you're going to speak on those texts. So you're responsible for this. And so on it went down the line. Well, Jesus is in Nazareth now. And it's not by coincidence that he's in Nazareth on this day. He's supposed to be there on this day. And it's not by coincidence. Jesus didn't walk up to the scrolls and say, ah, give me that part about the Messiah in Isaiah because I want to read that. No, it's the part that his family was responsible for. Jesus, being the eldest uh, boy, is going to be responsible. Now, he didn't have to be there every year at that time or every time that you can uh, delegate down to some of the other people, but it's Jesus' responsibility. So that's why he's here on this day. And that's why um, he's reading what he's reading. That's why that scroll was handed to him. That's why he stood up to come over and read. And so um, that's a part that that we've got to get that first part done that none of this was by chance. None of this was because um, that Jesus is the Messiah and he was claiming anything yet. But that's what was going on and that's how it went down. So that's, that's where we are with it so far. The living word literally got up to read um, the written word. You guys tracking with me so far? Because I'm just getting warmed up. All that was introduction. I'm, getting, I'm going to get going here. All right, so the, this whole section should cause us to wonder exactly what's going on here. And, and maybe, maybe you've heard what I just told you at some point uh, in, in some service somewhere along the line. Maybe you've heard this part about Jesus, you know, not picking that scroll, that one being handed to him. You know, and, and I like how it says that he had to unroll the scroll. You know, there were no verses, there were no chapters in, in those. So he just kept unrolling it until he found the spot that he was supposed to be reading on that day. Rolled it back up, handed it back to him. I mean, how many Bible apps do we have on our phones right now? I got like five. We have how many Bibles in our homes? They didn't have them like that. You had to go to the synagogue to hear the Word of God and have it read, have it read to you. Okay, so now... Um, the thing that I want to point out to you, though, and the, the, the thing we want to talk about and, and, and make us, that should make us wonder, again, we should be asking questions when we read the Bible. Um, so lines are in there to jump out at us and to make us think, right, and to make us try to figure out what's going on here. So look at verse 20 again, if we could, Jennifer. It says, Then he rolled up the scroll, um, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down. It says, The eyes of the synagogue were fastened on him. Um, that's uh, the NIV translation, which is a great translation for this section. Otherwise, we wouldn't be using it, obviously. But um, some of the other um, English translations say that they were watching Jesus closely, that they were watching him intently, that they were watching him attentively. Uh, And one of them says, and this is the best one, says that they were dumbfounded. Not only were they gawking and staring, their mouths were hanging open because it says that he hands the scroll back um, to the attendant and then he sat down. Okay, so you've probably heard this too, that um, just like Allie stood up to read and just like I stand up to read, we, we stand when we read God's word. And I even have you stand in respect of the gospel, right? And so that was so in that, in that day too. And then, but then when the rabbi was with his disciples, he would typically sit down among them to be part of the conversation, to be part of the crowd, not to be you know, the authoritative that we kind of do in the pulpit these days, not to be that authoritative figure, but to be part of the conversation. So he would oftentimes, 
most of the time he would sit down. Jesus wouldn't be required or even be expected to sit down here because he's going to read Isaiah 61 and then he's going to expound on it. But he does sit down. Okay, so everybody's looking at him, like I said, dumbfounded. But nothing should should jump out at us except there should be one thing that jumps out at us. Because all he's done so far, he stood up, he read, he handed it back to the attendant, all within the script, and then, and then he sat down. And that's where things really started to change and really started to um, make people stare at him, gawk at him, uh, be dumbfounded, uh, watching Jesus closely, wondering what is he going to do next. It's not the fact, let me get to it here, it's not the fact that he sat down, it's where he sat down. At the front of every synagogue was a special seat. It was called the Seat of Moses. And so what that seat was for was for the Messiah to come. And so I have a picture of one right here from archaeological dig. That's the seat of Moses that would be sitting in front of the synagogue. And it's there a special reserved seat for the Messiah to come and sit down in. This isn't unusual for their culture. This isn't an anomaly either, because I've told you before, like at the Seder meal, you know, the Passover meal, um, they, there'd be a, there's a place setting for Elijah. There's a place setting, an empty place setting at the table for Elijah. And then the youngest person in the Seder meal goes to the door to open the door to see if Elijah's there, because we got a place for you to sit down, because Elijah is going to return, prophecy tells us, before Jesus comes back. But what we have here now is the seat of Moses, because the Messiah is often called and often considered to be the second Moses. I talked about that about three years ago, and we might talk about that again, the second, but it's the second Moses. So the special seat, the seat of Moses is a special seat reserved for the Messiah. All right, so that's where it is. Jesus talks about it um, several times in Scripture. He, he talks to the Pharisees and the, and, the, and the Sadducees. He says to them, you would love to sit in the seat of Moses, but it's not your seat. You don't have that authority. You, you don't have that, that, that privilege to be there. So it's not some kind of, of uh, figurative idea. It was an, an actual seat. It was an actual chair for them to come, for the Messiah to come and sit in. And Jesus sits down in it. Now I showed you a second ago that there's no real, doesn't look like a time lapse anyway, between when Jesus left the wilderness and when he went to Galilee. But there was a lot going on there. And I'm, I'm going to kind of give you a teaser for next week. We're going to talk about kind of the rest of this story um, next week. And we're going to talk about how half the people in that synagogue understood, believed beyond a shadow of a doubt that Jesus was the Messiah and that he had every right to sit in that chair. If they didn't, they would have stoned him for blasphemy, saying he was the Messiah. But now they're not doing that. They're looking at him intently. They're gawking at him. They're like, what is happening right here? We just heard the, the, the scripture. We just heard the prophecy about the Messiah. And now here he is sitting in the seat of the Messiah. That's why they're all looking at him so intently and, and, and with, with such um, you know, incredible um, awe with him. And then Jesus breaks a silence in verse 21. It says, he began by saying to them, Today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. And Luke is saying, you guys need to know this. What was his thesis statement back there for Luke? I'm writing these things so that you can be sure that everything you've heard is true. I'm telling you what happened that day in this place on that time with this person. Who's going to set this up, right? That it's so that everything you know is true. 
But that's not where the story stops. That's really where the story for us begins. Jesus taking his rightful position, reading the, the prophecy about the Messiah. I'm going to get to that one second here. I'll help you understand that. And sitting down in that spot in front of all these people that he knows, for so, has known for so long. right? He grew up there. That's why Luke gives us those details. He's in Nazareth. And then Luke says, oh, by the way, that's where he grew up. Okay, well, that means that he's responsible, his family is responsible for some scripture. Okay, so Jesus is there that day, stands up in the middle of the service, comes up and takes his turn at that moment, and sits down. Luke says, you need to know this so that you can be sure. Because if word of mouth is the best advertisement about Christ, about anything, how are we doing? More to the point, I'm going to bring it back, if someone asked you why you were a follower of Jesus... What would you tell them? Well, why don't we start with Jesus' mission statement in verse 18, which comes straight out of Isaiah 61. Verse 18 says this, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free. That word anointed, literally means the Christ, the Messiah, the Chosen One. Other people were anointed. Samuel anointed kings with oil on them, but that's not what we're talking about here. We're talking about God's chosen Messiah, the Christ, Jesus. And then he starts telling his mission statement. Why? is the Messiah here? Why is the Messiah sitting in front of you? Why has this prophecy been fulfilled in your hearing? He says he's here to proclaim good news to the poor. Good news, that's not the word for gospel. It's the same root word. But what it really says is that it means to proclaim a joyful message. To proclaim a joyful message. In the Greek language, it means to what we do to announce a victory. So you get what he's saying here? At the very beginning of his ministry, he's just started and he's already claimed the victory. The victory is already won. Well, what victory? Think about what he reads here, what Jesus reads here. And if someone asked you why you were a follower of Christ, maybe this is an outline that we can follow. Maybe these are some of the things that God does, Jesus does in our lives on an active basis like today. That's why I said, what, I didn't say, how has he made a difference? I said, how does he make a difference? What does Jesus say? Proclaim the good news to the poor. Poor, that's not um, a monetary thing. That's not people that don't have enough money to meet their means. But it, it means people that are helpless. And not just helpless, but not able to meet their needs. Specifically, not able to accomplish our own salvation. The Messiah is here to proclaim good news, right? To, to claim a victory For those of us who cannot accomplish our own salvation, he's here to help us. Right? He's here to help us. So number one, he came to help us. And Jesus too, number two, he came to free us. Freedom, it says. He sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners. Freedom literally means uh, release from bondage. And at the first service, we confess our sins the same way every week. We say we are in bondage to sin and cannot, what? Free ourselves. We can't do it. We need somebody to come and free us. 
And not just the forgiveness of sins. Do we get this? Not just the forgiveness of sins. Um, he, Jesus says when he forgives your sins, he sends them away. He says, I send them away as far as the east is from the west. Go try to find them. Good luck with that because they are gone. Right? So that's what he comes to free us from all of that. He helps those who cannot help themselves, especially as it comes to our salvation. We can't accomplish it on our own. He comes to free us from that bondage of sin. Lastly, he comes to heal us. Jesus came to heal us. That word oppressed in verse 18 means to be broken into pieces, to be shattered. A synonym for that word is is to smite. Jesus says he will remove you from all of that. He will help us. He will free us. He will heal us. So I ask you again, if someone asks you, why are you a follower of Jesus? What are you going to tell them? How about we start with something like this? The opening line is allowing Jesus into our heart, into our life. And I can't emphasize this enough. That's not a one and done thing. You can't say, oh, I, did, I led Jesus into my life 40 years ago and I've not even talked to him since. That's not what we're talking about. Open our hearts and our lives to Jesus on a daily basis, on an hourly basis, on a minute-by-minute basis. Accept him as your personal Savior on a daily basis. Allow him to help us, to free us, to heal us, to literally change our lives from the inside out. That's the Messiah's mission statement. This is what I'm going to do for you. It comes straight from our brother Luke, who is one of us and is writing to us. And he's writing to us, why? So that we can know the truth and we can be sure that we're following the right one. You picking up what I'm putting down? Can I get an amen? Let's stand.